Hello, and welcome to Stuff Mom I Forgot to Tell You. I'm Monica Francois Marcel, a Gen X founder, entrepreneur, and baseball mom based in Chicago. And I believe that if we're very lucky and work very hard, life will be long and it will be messy. So to help us with the mess and provide tips for longevity and joy in what lies ahead, each episode, I'm borrowing either the mother of a friend or a trusted mentor that I greatly admire. This is a diverse group of women who've been there and done that, and you are going to love their stories. My own mom isn't here anymore, so the stuff these women share is precious to me, and their cross-generational pearls of wisdom are just what we all need. I'm so excited for you to join us, so let's jump in. Welcome to Stuff Mama Forgot to Tell You. And today I am really thrilled to have with me Dr. Seema Imam, who is a new friend that I'm getting to know. And it turns out that we have quite a bit in common, and I can't wait to share her stories with you today. Uh, Seema, would you like to say hello? Good afternoon. Hello. Seema, our first question is one that is really designed just to kind of get to know you a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, as a reminder, you know, this project that we're doing is organized around the idea that I wish that I still had my own mom around and, and my dad passed away last year. And so quite selfishly, but I know I'm not alone, I'm borrowing the wisdom and just the, um, the warmth, really, of uh, the mothers and uh, friends of mine and also some peers that I really greatly admire. And your daughter is among those people that has really made an impression on me, you know, in my career. And I know that she is at least in part amazing because of you. So I can't wait to hear a little bit more about your own story and your own background. So if we think about your start in the world and uh, we'll get to, you know, some of the things that you're doing now and how you're living your life now and your advice for the future. But if we go back to your own beginning, wherever you want to start, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you grew up. If you can remember back, what were some of the things that were put in front of you as maybe options on the table for who you might be? Were there any expectations people had for you? Or a simpler way of saying it might be, what do you think your own mom may have wanted for you when you were young? And how did that turn out? Sure. So I was born in 1953 in Oklahoma. One set of grandparents were in the oil field industry. And one set of Mm. grandparents uh, were farmers in Illinois. My father was coming out of the service when I was born. And we lived in a tiny little house in Oklahoma near Claymore where our bathroom was an outhouse and our bathtub was pulled into the kitchen and we we didn't have a lot but we never missed anything i don't think we even realized that uh you know people might use the word poor because we didn't think (laughs) of ourselves as poor we just made sure not to lose the mittens or gloves because you know you don't want to have to come by another pair right So growing up there took me to about fourth grade. And uh, my sister, my oldest sister, started school in in a one-room schoolhouse down the street. And I think that what I just described really is I was on the tail end of that era of the no plumbing and, you know, those kind of things. Because I remember in the same house getting a television. And I remember my father bringing it into the house. 
And, you know, things I watched by the time I was in fifth grade, I was in Illinois. I remember uh, being on the farm, in the farmhouse, actually, that uh, my mother's, no, my father's father had built for he and his wife. Mm. And so that was in uh, rural Illinois between Champaign and Decatur. And in the farmhouse, we also didn't heat in the same way we have it today, like, you know, forced central air and heat. We had uh, an oil furnace and we had a potbelly stove and a cooking stove that was fired by coal. And we didn't have to use that, but we did. And um, being on the farm and in a small town, my high school might have had, I don't know if I had 40, 50, 60 students in each class, but everybody was coming to school uh, by bus and from neighboring areas. And my grandfather, that was the farmer, was right across the road from us. I remember getting off the bus and getting on a tractor in a snowstorm in order to be taken home you know, by a tractor and Hmm. not knowing who he was, it didn't matter because in a small town, it didn't matter. He came to take care of you (laughs) and you thanked him. So um, there were many adventures like that that seemed perfectly normal and incredibly wholesome. The kindness and the amount of um, dependability on what people around you are doing being correct and honorable was so comforting, so comforting. You know, my grandparents were around us and we lived in that house and they lived across the road. And I grew up in that house with an electric blanket because as I said, we didn't have central air. We had a heated home, but the electric blanket was, you know, a treasure (laughs) to go to sleep with. Many snowstorms, many times being uh, snowed in Many early, um, you know, in my life, kinds of struggles that taught me how to live. I used to milk the cows. We used to gather the eggs. In fact, I was the only one of the kids that milked the cows. My father would milk once a day, and I would milk once a day for a period of time. I don't know how many years we did that, but there were five of us, and I was in the middle. Uh, So growing up, that's what I recall. I went to church. I was Christian. And that was also a good experience. When I got to high school, I took piano lessons from a neighbor. And uh, then I started to play organ in the church. And so I had a rich um, spiritual life as a kid. My parents worked very hard. My mother didn't teach until I was in high school. She took on her degree somewhere in there and started to teach school. My father was a pattern maker um, in a factory in Decatur, Illinois. And so he worked night shifts. So we didn't see him every weekday. We saw him on the weekends and he was a very hardworking man. So our cows were milked at noon and midnight. Or if we were switching it, then we could do six and six, but it depended. You have to be, you know, (laughs) you have to be regimented about that. So... I wanted to go back at some point to the fact that I think you just mentioned that your mother, I don't want to misunderstand, got her formal education, maybe her her, her college degree or something after yes. you all kind of run the house. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I'll get back to that. And then secondly, 
just while you're still in the um, nostalgia of, uh, you know, remember, and that's my word, not yours, um, of, of your youth, anything come to mind as to what you think uh, people might have been anticipating you might be? I ask this, Seema, because as I talk to some women, um, it, it's quite it's quite powerful to me to take away. I have several um, women who of a certain um, social class and things, it was very clearly laid out for them what options were and were not available to them. And it was very formally reinforced systemically, including by their parents. I have others where um, that was not the case. And it was really much more of a, you know, the world is yours and it's our goal to put you in that direction, et cetera. So I'm just curious, did, did you, do you remember any messages as to um, what the expectations might've been for you? Well, you know, I, I hesitate actually to say this, but um, the education that we got was not intended to take us very far. We okay. didn't learn social studies or writing, for example. Okay. It wasn't um, what I would uh, have wanted for my own kids. There were things about our education. I was Methodist, and across the street, across the tracks of the small town I was in was a Baptist church. I knew no um, no one other than um, white American Christians. And okay. I think, although I don't think it was said to me, but I believe that I should have stayed in my town. And I should have, you know, done what everybody else does, whatever that might be. Somebody, you know, not everyone went to college. I have two siblings that did, one who did right out of high school and the other one went back to it uh, and got her mm-hmm. degree later on. But the other three, um, other than myself, the other two, because other people third, didn't. And it really okay. wasn't an expectation. I really felt like I found my own way from the time I was 15 or 16 because I had a plan. My plan was okay. to be an art teacher. I really liked my... Um, high school art teacher a lot I was very creative and she was had a big effect on me um we were taught to sew we were in 4-H we could survive in almost anything my father was a boy scout master we learned about starting fire with sticks we learned about that wasn't a survival thing that was something in boy scouts but right yeah I remember him in his uniform and he you know worked hard at that but I don't think there was any real, you know, real plan that you should be this or the other. I think it was very important to my family that we all stay in good in a good value uh, system. That our lives should be, uh, you know, lived according to God's plan. Now that's where okay. my journey takes a big turn because. An experience I had as a child, uh, maybe in seventh grade, I don't know exactly when it was, uh, I had been in church all my life, and I had, you know, in high school, the the role of playing the organ in church, but at some point, I was learning the hard lesson of racism in Mm. my small town, but I, I didn't recognize it. I didn't know that there was racism because I didn't know anyone who wasn't white. I had an uncle who was an Italian, and he was brown, but I didn't know much. And I asked my grandmother once, why are we calling? Why are we worried about a black person who's driving through our town? 
And I said something that she didn't like. I said, we sing red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Why do we sing that if we don't want those black people to come through town? I don't mean to sound bad when I'm saying it that way. I had high respect and regard for all people of all races, but that's how she said it to me. And then she tapped me on the head and told me to go, you know, go somewhere else and sit down. And parent, you know, grownups will take care of that, she said. And that never Mm -hmm. left my mind. That was very heavy for me. And on my, uh, in my social studies book, on the left-hand bottom, I remember this and I don't know why. (laughs) I learned about Mohammedans just a little bit. There was just a line or two about Mohammedans. And I don't know why I could never forget that, but I was in fifth grade. I know the teacher that taught the lesson. I remember the room. And later I would become Muslim. So I become I began to get introduced to Islam when I was mm-hmm. 17. And in my first, actually my second semester at Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, Illinois. So I knew something about Mohammedans, but why was it Mohammedan? Why wasn't it Muslim? And, you know, all these things were questions that I had. And the Muslims that I met were much more knowledgeable about Christianity than I was. And and so that was, you know, something that was, you know, a, a really big deal for me. So, you know, to look at your question, you know, I think my parents were okay with me going to college and becoming an art teacher, but they didn't really um, help me through any of the obstacles. Before we jump into your kind of your more modern dayness and some of the things you're doing today, I do want to get back to the thing you mentioned casually. So how old were you when your mom got her education? And tell me a little bit more about how she navigated that process. Well, not only did my mom go back to school, but my dad's mom did too. And they both went into teaching. Wow. So my mom went, um, I think... She started as a teacher's aide in in kindergarten and then got her education about the same time I went to college. Uh, So the end of high school for me. And then she she got her position. But all the time she was in the same school that I was going to, you know, my elementary school. I have a brick that she gave me when they tore it down. Yeah, so that going back, she had, you know, she and my father met when they were in college. So he was coming back, you know, from, from the war, from, you know, being a veteran and he was in school and she was in school and then they stopped and got married and then they had my sister and then she didn't go back until after the kids were pretty grown up. Um, Got it. All grown up probably. Uh, Maybe my younger two were still, they might've been in high school. Uh, so she was a teacher's aide and then a teacher. And she just, you know, I think it was economical and I think it was also fulfilling. I think she probably knew she wanted to, to do those things with her life, you know. And my grandmother, too, was a good cook and a homemaker. But when she started teaching and she only taught a few years, she, I don't know, she had uh, really some strong things that she could give kids because I know what she gave the grandmother that I'm speaking about that what she gave me as a kid you know that Uh academics were important even though no one was helping me get to college I still knew that I need to know certain things I need to be a good reader although I don't remember anybody being a very avid reader you know in my family we did go to the library we did get books we did read but I mean I just love books you know now 
Um, so that's pretty amazing yeah. to have those. T- I mean, just to reflect on that for a second, I don't know how much you've reflected on this, Seema, but just listening to you talk that you have these two women in your life um, whose education was either interrupted mm-hmm. or um, not, you know, accessible at a yeah. moment. And right when you're getting yours, um, you know, you have your own mom and then also your grandmother going back and also getting some formal education. And uh, that's just very interesting yeah. to me, you know, I, I'm not sure what to make of it, but it's certainly noteworthy. Yeah, I think. And, and she's very proud of her teaching career, which is the, you know, the, you know, she's been out of teaching maybe now for 20 years, but uh, she might, might have taught for 20 years. Well, that's the next question for you. I want to shift over. My next question is, so thinking from your side, this will also be a chance for us to get to know you a little bit professionally. We've got some hints already, but what would you say you're proud of, right? So if we asked your mom, she might say, oh, I'm I'm very proud of my teaching career. And I'd love to talk to her about that. I think you said she's still around. So I'd love to ask her that question. But in your own case, you know, if I or your kids or anyone asked you that question, what would you say in terms of what you're proud of? Well, one of the things that I'm really proud of is my kids, because certainly, as I mentioned to you, coming to be a Muslim in, in the time that I did, where Muslims were not, you know, everywhere around us, like now they really are, you know, uh, in 1971 and then 74 when I had Aisha and then 76 when I had college, you know, there weren't that many uh, Muslims around and there were a few institutions and mosques. And so I'm really proud that my kids are practicing Islam as adults, Mm -hmm. because it wasn't easy to be Muslim in America. And it hasn't been easier as my grandchildren were born because we have the post 9-11 thing and all this negativity and and Islamophobia and all the stuff that's not true. That's That's not who Muslims are. So my kids have navigated a very difficult world and I'm very proud of my kids and their kids. So that's Mm -hmm. number one, certainly professionally, because I taught since 1975. I did my student teaching. And so it's like 48 years. I taught all through without taking breaks except maternity leaves and continued my education. I have, you know, my undergraduate in teaching and elementary ed and special ed minor. So I had both of those certifications coming out of, um, you know, my undergraduate. And then I, I did two masters and then I did two doctorates. So I, I really, yeah, I value wow. learning so much and I still make sure that I'm in formal uh, learning environments today because I think, you know, and Islamically, you know, we have hadith, you know, the, the life of the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, teaches us that, you know, uh, we should all be learning from the cradle to the grave. And yeah. so I take that to heart, you know, so those are my, uh, you know, what I think are my big accomplishments. I, I have been um, very much an activist, very much uh, the diversity, equity, inclusion before they named it. I mean, I've been doing this forever. So when you think about, you know, the messages that you want to leave to your kids, right? And um, you could pick one value, you could pick anywhere you want to go. But what are some of the things that um, 
you want to make sure that they take away, you know, both from your lived experience and also in terms of what you want for them, mm. right? So maybe there's a certain saying you find yourself saying all the time to them, yeah. right? Maybe there's a certain kind of message that keeps repeating itself. Maybe there's even a quote or a motto or a mantra, mm. a prayer, and whatever, wherever you want to go with that. But I'm just curious, what are some of the... Um, the key messages that you try to reinforce. Yeah. So last March I marked 50 years as a Muslim. Okay. So I, I did a little thing where I told them, take out this little gift, this little memento in 50 years and think about the message that I told you about tonight when we had this little dinner and I had a beautiful cake and I told them, you know, that you must hold fast to your prayers. You know, you've chosen to be Muslim that would be a statement I would make. Hold fast to your prayers. They're five, five daily prayers. It's not a big deal. It doesn't right. take much time out of your total day, but it brings you closer to your maker. I learned that prayer as a kid, you know, not the prayer as Muslims pray it, you know, standing and, and physically praying, mm -hmm. but I learned it. I prayed in the cornfields. I was close to God. It's the same God. Mm -hmm. um, that's one. The other is hold fast to the rope of Islam. Read the Quran. Read it in English. Know what it means because when you don't know what it means, we all memorize. And so we know it in Arabic. But memorizing is one thing and knowing what it means is another. But I also always had pets in my house. You know, we had birds, we had cats. They're big nuisance. They make a lot of mess. I didn't do it <laughs> because I wanted to do it. I always had plants. You know, but I always had to clean the fish tank and, you know, the bird cages and whatnot. I, I, I think I learned from my mother the value of loving nature ah. and the fact that gardening, my kids are gardeners. Uh, I have some very unusual plants that my kids have grown from seeds. I don't have them. They have them. I have one of them, a <laughs> lemon tree that's now three feet tall in less than two years that one of my sons planted. There's an avocado, wow. there are a couple mangoes somewhere in somebody's house. And my point is that, you know, being a farmer and providing food for the world, for humanity, is a big deal. Food for humanity, a big deal. Milking the cow, gathering the eggs. Don't just think that the eggs in the carton that you take off the shelf and the milk in the jug and the tomatoes off the shelf, you know, I mean... The fact that you can eat in this world and eat in your kitchen clean food, clean water, we have to take care of the environment. We have to take care of one another. I've been thinking about everything you're talking about now, like the basics and, and understanding you know, how to get your own food and, and where it comes from and what are the origins and, and climate is something very much on my mind these days. And I keep thinking about in my next chapter, what can I do? And you're giving me ideas about what I might do to contribute in maybe unconventional ways to, um, you know, understanding our relationship with the earth and with climate and where we go next. I want to read everything you're writing, Seema. <laughs> and then I want to ask you a question. I have another question for you. What are you most looking forward to? You know, so um, you've been teaching for all these years. I know that you have a lot left in you. So what are you planning and what are you kind of preparing for, for the next decades? You know, that's a really interesting question. I had some health issues recently and uh, I'm really, I guess, planning that uh, prayer that God gives me breath and health 
and wisdom to deal with all the people in my life in good ways to support them because there's so many things in the world that they're dealing with that I don't want them to veer off the path and I want them to be cared for. So I'm working on things around what makes us who we are. What is mm-hmm. it that makes us who we are? What What's the next step for, for Muslims in America? Because, you know, Muslims are a okay. highly educated part of this country. And it's happened in my lifetime, in those 50 years. Uh, and, you know, there's a misunderstanding that, you know, like the Malala story and Pakistani women. Pakistani women, right. my sister-in-law's... Um, are very educated. There's not just, you know, because Malala said, you know, something about education, Americans can fall for that. That Malala mm-hmm. had, you know, she was in a village. That was a different story. But we don't realize right. the, you know, the magnitude of what other people in other parts of the world have and do. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and most Americans right. just don't travel to other parts of the world. Right. And if they do, then it's sightseeing. Let's see the beach of this place or the waterside right, right, or the mountain right, right. and not the people. Yeah. And, and so right. for my uh, dream, I, I want to, you know, children to be, and my kids or adults, to be cognizant of their opportunities. There's so many opportunities. I, I want, uh, as I plan, I'm trying to see which door God opens for me. And the door that God opens for me, because it's been going on for me since I went to Hajj in 1978, that's the pilgrimage, I learned from a bearded elderly gentleman that God will open doors for you, and you have to be aware in order to go through them. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think he opened many doors for me, and I think that this elderly gentleman really taught me to be always eyes wide open. Now they call it woke. Right. <laughs> okay. So I was woke when uh, I was 17, 18, 19, 23. I don't yeah. know. 1978. I was not that old. I was a baby going for Hajj. I was a new Muslim going to Saudi Arabia to the pilgrimage. And he was telling me, you have wind, you know, beneath your wings. There's you so much you can do. Uh, and, and I knew that he didn't know, but his message from me really was from God that, you know, you were gifted with Islam. It didn't just happen. I left a farm and I went to college and I met Muslims and I was taken aback and I left my faith and I left my family. I stayed away from my family for 14 years without wow. knowing what my, if my sisters had kids. I didn't know. They didn't know mm-hmm. about my kids. And then somehow I got connected. I saw my father one more time. He passed away. I had my youngest child. You know, there's so many things that I'm leaving out because there's so many, you know, so many minutes in, your, in this conversation. But, you know, I know that things that people say to you come, they're your, your I don't want to call them messenger because we say messenger in a, in a different way for Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, but messages that we get people Mm -hmm. are in our lives for a reason you're in my life for a reason to allow me to say this to say these things you know and to take a moment to think about the value of our life i mean i'm enamored by the fact that that i'm meeting you and you have this you know journey and i'm on a similar journey 
you know, I'm 68, um, but I want to make sense of my life. Like, like you're saying, what am I going to do for the next two decades? You know, what are you going to do? What are you going to give to women? Women have been left out of everything. Medical research, you know, education. We don't move up. We don't get paid the same, you know, it's, it's a travesty. Who decides what women wear? It's the fashion industry, right? You can't yeah. buy something if you want to dress modestly that's off of a shelf, but who decided what to put on the shelf? And this is something you're reminding me of too, which is that when we, one of the things I learned in my, in my field is that one of the benefits in all of this is that when we work and understand one community, you know, all communities have an opportunity. So you just talked about that, right? So when we, for example, recognize, um, and I was talking about now, Olympics, right? I know that there have also been recent changes and, and approvals um, that were necessary to be done, but now they're there with regard to, for modesty, with regard to swimwear, you know, for, for Muslim women that are competing in different events um, in the Olympics. And to your point now, um, I know a lot of other people that are wanting to wear some of the same stuff, right? So it is exciting to see how when we make room, right, for one community, you know, a lot of others benefit along the way. And, and we should all know that. That should be just ingrained in us. But we have to be reminded. I could talk to you all day. I do want to wrap up. And I want to ask you just my final question, if I can, which is, what have you not shared? Um, you know, the, the title of our project, again, is um, Stuff That Mama Forgot to Tell You. And the idea being that maybe there's some wisdom, uh, some lessons that um, have been unshared and kind of need to get excavated and need to get um, dusted off. Um, some people that I interview say, nope, I've told her this every day. I tell my kids this every day. There's nothing that I've said. I'm just going to reinforce something. But maybe there is a message either that you have for me, you know, as a 53-year-old going forward kind of on this journey, um, or maybe it's for, you know, one of your your kids. But is there any other message or story uh, that you want to kind of wrap us up with? The time you have, no matter what age you are, it's perhaps the wealth that you're unaware of. It is wealth. Time is wealth. You know, and I think that goes back to my childhood. My parents and and their lack of wealth meant nothing. But time was so wound back. Patience was different. Mm -hmm. Everything was different. And when I traveled to Pakistan, it took me several days to realize that I was unwinding like a slinky, or not a slinky, a spring, Unwinding like a spring because time was not a big deal. The rush is gone when you go to some other countries. And that's what I think we don't realize. We're in a rat race. Refuse to be in the rat race. Use the time you want to use for what you want to use it for. Write it down. Make rules. Write it down. Make rules. Yeah. Right. We all have the same amount of hours. It's a matter of how we use them, right? And the wealth in them. Well, I, again, could talk to you for days. So I look forward to speaking with you again and to checking in on what you do decide to do with those next 25 years. Uh, But in the meantime, it has been my great honor and privilege to have you here for this uh, conversation. I am very grateful to you. I thank you. And uh, until next time. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure and honor to speak with you. I'm glad you know my daughter. (laughs) I see why she's so awesome.